Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by Ultimate OE. If you're a keen hunter and outdoorsman and you're thinking about heading over to do your overseas experience in the near future or you think it's high time you did one, then you should really consider doing one of our hunting experiences. These days we offer hunting experiences in both Canada and Scotland, which are designed for hunters by hunters. We look after all of the paperwork side of things, help you out with your visa, make sure you're covered legally, all that kind of stuff, make sure that's streamlined. And we also teach you everything you need to know before you leave New Zealand. This allows you to hit the ground running when you get to the country, so both Canada and Scotland, different trainings for different places. It's industry specific, so we teach you what you need to know or what your employers want you to know before you get there. This allows us to secure the best possible jobs, so we have access to the best jobs in both Scotland and Canada, and they're all paid jobs and we work with only the best outfitters. So if you want a little bit more out of your OE, you want to go over there, have a real adventure, do something really unique, and expand your mind and experience as a hunter, see how the rest of the world does it, or at least how they do it in Scotland and Canada, uh, this is a great stepping stone. So if you're interested, flick us an email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com, or check out our website, ultimateoe.co.nz, for more details. Welcome. Today I'm sharing a conversation with a good friend of mine, Stefan Hope. Stefan is a passionate hunter, but equally divides this passion with a, a heavy interest in conservation. We'll be chatting about hunting in New Zealand, the Chatham Islands, Canada and Scotland, and importantly some of the learnings he has taken from these experiences. Stefan is currently here with me in Waimati. This week he is sharing some of his experiences and helping me out the teaching involved in the first Ultimate OE Scottish training course. It's great having him here with me. I've certainly enjoyed the endless banter that that, that follows Stefan around, but more, more so I've really enjoyed seeing firsthand the growth in Stefan as a hunter. I first met Stefan in 2014 when he joined Matt and myself for the Canadian training course. A lot has changed since then. And it's great to be able to look back and see what Stefan and Ultimate OE have been able to achieve, you know, in that time. I have no doubt you will enjoy this lighthearted chat, but equally hope that some of the discussions also begin to spark a need to dive further in certain directions, of which we will in good time. With nothing more to say, I'll go on and introduce Stefan. Okay, so here we are. Here with Stefan, we're on day five of the the first Ultimate OE Scottish training course. Uh, we've managed to find ourselves some free time, if you like. Uh, the rest of the boys are tidying up dinner and, and doing their social thing for the evening. So I've dragged Stefan away just purely to have a conversation about his experiences internationally, uh, his, his version of conservation, um, and, and just, I guess just a general conversation on hunting, um, ethics, and experiences, and 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 I'm sure there'll be some things that come up, and we'll just 
head down those rabbit holes when they come about. So looking forward to this conversation. Um, the rustling you hear in the background is we're actually tucked up in our sleeping bags because it's it's a early winter South Canary day. <laughs> it's not that clog, uh, not that warm where we are. I guess, I guess a good starting point for you guys out there to to meet Stefan will be to know where his hunting started, and I, I mean prior to Ultimate OE. So I'll hand it over to Stefan, and and he can just sort of give you a little insight as to the hunter Stefan was prior to Ultimate OE. Sweet, yeah. G'day, Kieran. Cheers for the introduction. Um, yeah, I was pretty fortunate enough. Uh, it's funny how things happen. Um, I was always keen on my fishing when I was young. And I went to college, and um, as it goes, I got sat next to a young guy called Ricardo. Um, I never, I didn't know anything about hunting. And Ricardo's hunt, uh, family were pig hunting keen. So... Um, it wasn't long before I was dragged along on a pig hunt, and at, at that stage, yeah, I was hooked. Um, but yes, yeah, so I always look back, and I always joke with Ricardo saying that he's ruined my life, but um, <laughs> we're still best friends to this date. But if he ne- if he would have never sat next to me, I always think, you know, would I have been into hunting? Um, but it wasn't long after the pig hunting that I was after a little bit more, and I guess my first you could probably call it internationally, but uh, international. But um, my first experience was I got um, offered a job as a power diver in the Chatham Islands. At this stage, I was sort of doing a lot of spear fishing and um, just starting to get into the pig hunting. Um, so yeah, went over to the Chathams, and that's when I really started, um, you know, taking hunting quite seriously. Mm, yeah, cool. Chathams, I've never been to the Chathams and it's definitely on my to-do list. Uh, my to-do list is big. Uh, for those of you that know me will understand that. Um, me and Stephen actually share a common interest in the pig hunting. Uh, I imagine probably at some point we'll talk about that or on a later later podcast we'll talk about pig hunting. Um, but I just, whilst, whilst Chatham Island is off topic, um, my version of, of Chatham Islands from somebody that's never been there is it seems like an island or a community uh, very heavily regulated around animals as a resource and the utilisation of them. And it seems to be that the the pure ethos of the island or community is that if they look after it, there's a resource for everybody and that they sort of manage their numbers around that. Like, how did you find that while you were over there, Stefan? And you know, based on what I know, you were there as a young guy, so it was probably quite contrasting to the way your your hunting was. You know, back here in, on the mainland, if you like. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a definitely an eye opener going from um, sticking the first fifty pound sow that you came across to releasing um, you know one hundred and forty pound boars. Um, totally different. Also, the sea life as well, like going for a dive and you know, crazy to think that New Zealand used to be like what the Chatham Islands was like, you know, hopping in the water just around, I guess, the the centre of town and being able to get crayfish and power and just the fish life was amazing. Um, a real highlight of my trip there was when I was about 17 shooting a harpooka, which is pretty much 
non-existent here in the mainland now. But yeah, the the hunting's all about feeding the family. So when I was talking about releasing that boar, we caught a boar one day about 140 pound. I couldn't believe the size of it. And when they said they were going to release it, I nearly fell over backwards, you know. Um, <clears throat> so in the Chathams there, you'll catch a you'll catch a boar and you'll you'll actually barrow it. Um, and they do that so when they recatch this so, animal. So just to put context on that for those that don't know, barrowing refers to the to the removing the testicles, desexing the male. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, and they'll also earmark it. Each pig owner over there will have a, a trade earmark, I guess. So when the pigs recaught, whoever caught it can be like, you know, cheers, we just caught your barrow that you barrowed whenever it was. Um, you know, so that that was real interesting to go from hunting in New Zealand when it's just recreational. You're out there for a laugh with a couple mates, going to the Chathams, and you're actually hunting for food. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a real learning curve. As I said, I was only probably 17 at the time. Um, but yeah, heaps of fun hunting wild cattle purely for dog food and to keep the farmer happy and chasing pit island sheep around the cliffs. Yeah, it was an awesome place for a young guy to grow up. So I was real fortunate enough to go over there, and I've been over there multiple times since. So yeah, yeah. no, yeah, certainly lucky, and luck, luckily in in many respects, like purely straight up for the opportunity. But I think importantly, as a young hunter, to have been privy to that ideal, you know, of of the resource, and and that I think that's awesome, and even the respect. Uh, I think that's you know great, a great. Uh, string to the bow of a young hunter you know and it's probably in part embedded a little bit of ethos to your hunting from that period on you know and uh, I myself when I started hunting particularly with the dogs um, some of the older guys they they too install that kind of stuff and I think it's a really good I think it's a really good attribute for hunters to have and it's not not that any particular method or any particular scenario on whether you should or shouldn't kill an animal um, is the important part, but just the idea that you're willing to consider the fact that you shouldn't just kill everything. Like at times there's definitely a need to, um, but then equally other times there's not so much. So so that's awesome. So then I guess moving on from that, you were recreationally hunting within New Zealand and then you obviously come across an advert for Ultimate OE. Yeah, for sure. So... Uh, I came back from the Chatham Islands and that gave me the taste of, I guess, travelling and hunting. And I was just looking for something more. And um, I don't know how I stumbled across you guys, but your ad popped up. I think it was on the internet and it wasn't five minutes after reading uh, reading the ad that I was on the phone. I think it was to you actually, Curran. Yep. And um, I'd signed myself up and got a couple of mates to join up as well for that. I think it was the second year you guys were running the course. Yeah, it was yeah, definitely the second year. We were down in Dunedin, uh, and there was a rough-looking mob turned up from the North Island, <laughs> and, and you were part of that contingent. Um, but it was it was a good, like, it was good to have, I guess they were, you guys were young Kiwis in comparison to Matthew and myself, but you actually brought, uh, you know, you know, over the board quite a bit of experience and skill, even at your young age, you know, based on, I guess your own recreational hunting but then also passions and the, and the industries you were taught you know kind of working on because i think at the time you were loosely in the conservation sector was yeah, that, is yeah. that a basis and so that's obviously an interest of yours yeah yeah for sure so that 
Um, I left school quite early. Um, school wasn't for me. And I was doing a lot of possum trapping when I was young, sort of possum trapping and firewood. And I sort of landed on my feet with entering the conservation sector without really knowing what I was doing. I was out possum trapping a pine block one day and I stumbled across a, a, a regional council ranger and we started chatting. Um, he was a bit older guy and obviously started chatting about life. Had this talk a thousand times before. And he'd actually offered me uh, an interview at his office. Just, you know, he seen that I was keen. And um, he said that there was a one-month contract um, for the regional council he was working with at the time. So, yeah, I lapped that up. uh, Worked my butt off for about a month. And they just kept rolling over the contract till eventually they offered me a full-time contract um, and also correspondence studies to go with that and sort of my passion for the outdoors um, was just further enhanced I guess and you know I was, I was really into it for the hunting but I soon you know started to change the way I thought about hunting and um, you know around more the conservation side of it side of things so yeah, it was a real eye opener. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I certainly remember. It's one of the first impressions I had of you, and obviously back then, ultimately, was only two years in, and, and you know, x amount of years down the track. Now we've sent over two hundred uh, people, you know, to work in the hunting industry in Canada. Um, but but I do remember meeting you, and it actually still stands out because your your drive, your ambition was slightly different to everybody else's. Like you know. And I definitely don't knock it, but a lot of young guys come to me about the animals they've killed and the animals they've hunted and the thing. Whereas you seem to, even way back then, have an enjoyment in the activity of hunting, not so much the animal. And and that that's that has stuck with me. Um, but but I guess so. So we did the training. I'd like to think you learned something from the training. <laughs> um, and then and then from from that point, you sort of went on. I guess the first of your real international experiences yeah yeah for sure so did the training and it wasn't um long after that a little young kiwi was heading over to the yukon sort of um the yukon looking back now definitely definitely put me in my place but um yeah so that that was an amazing experience um the yukon really uh taught me to be how it taught me to be grateful of what we have here in New Zealand. Um, you know, over there, they're not as lucky as us where we can just head out whenever we want after work, weekends, you know, essentially shoot what we want. And, you know, heading over there with their tagging systems, you know, meeting some of the head guides there that are only shot three or four animals themselves, you know. And here I was at 19 or 20, and, you know, I'd probably shot a handful of animals by then. And so, yeah, real eye-opener for me, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm. Yeah, that's no, a very, very regulated uh, system. And, and you can, you know, you can argue there's pros and cons for sure. Um, but it's very, it's a very different concept to go from where we are now, um, you know, here in New Zealand and, and growing up in, in the hunting sector. Um, essentially, like you say, being able to hunt when and where we want to for any species. I mean, other than, the, you know, specific ballot 
type um, system. You know, essentially we have a free reign. Um, unfortunately, with that free reign is pretty unresourceful. You know, like we sort of are pretty complacent around that sort of stuff. So obviously you had a lot to learn there. Like what, do you have any standout moments from your time in the Yukon? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely using the horses um, in the Yukon there, to the guys who don't know, um, they everything's on horseback essentially. Um, you know, coming from New Zealand, I didn't have a huge amount of horse experience. And um, going over to the Yukon, you know, riding sometimes 10 hours in a day, leading five pack horses, uh, glassing from a horse. Um, I mean, I learned the hard way, that's for sure. I got given a horse called Buck. Uh, you know, <laughs> appropriately named. Yeah, appropriately named. I got the bird's eye view of the Yukon essentially nearly every day. Um, but it definitely <laughs> made me uh, become a better rider. I guess the standout things for me, um, again, was just how lucky we are in New Zealand. You know, like there was the Grizzlies there, um, the Wolves, obviously. And they... You know, they, they chuck a different side, you know, on your hunting. We we sort of take it for granted here in New Zealand how relaxed we can be when we're hunting. And I sort of thought, found in the Yukon, you know, I, was, I guess I was new to it and I was new to the Grizzlies, etc. that I sort of was always watching over my back, if you knew what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just had to be extremely mm-hmm. careful. But uh, looking back now with key moments in the Yukon that I that I'll take home... Um, I think it was the day we shot a I shot a big bull moose. Um, it'd been a it was a we were nine days into a ten day hunt, and um, long story short, we were struggling to find a bull. And about I don't know a kilometre from camp um, on the morning of the ninth day, um, we saw a big bull moose with a handful of cows. And, you know, seeing the guide call him in to about, oh, I must only been about 50 metres, and, and knock him over was an awesome experience. But it wasn't the end of that experience. Um, me being the wrangler, it was my job to come back the next day and load the horses up. By this stage, we were probably two months into a three-month season, so I had a bit of experience by now, so I could load the ponies. And um, coming to the site, you know, I came across where the moose was meant to be all boned out, I came across just a big dirt pile. And <laughs> the night before, uh, Cheeky Grizz had come in and, and buried the moose and actually, you know, claimed it as as his claimed own territory. Own. Yeah, and here I was, you know, pretty naive. I towed, tied the ponies up about, um, oh, that must have been about 100 metres away, 50 metres away, something like that, with the uh, rifle in the scabbard. Um, I was sort of... <laughs> Note on that, I do remember telling Stefan never to leave his rifle in the scabbard when he was approaching the site of a kill like that. Yeah, I sort of, I hadn't had a problem with the Grizzlies, so I sort of, you know, thought it was a bit all talk, but um, got there <laughs> and, you know, here I was sort of picking out all the mud of the meat. I thought, oh, this is too big of a job. So I rung back up um, at camp and all the, a few of the guides and clients came to help me out and we soon realised... You know, I soon realised how serious the situation was when they were all fully gun loaded up, standing all around me, because apparently this grizzly had marked his territory. And here I was for an hour, just fumbling around, <laughs> whistling. You know, didn't really 
realise how much danger I was in. So I always look back at that memory with a bit of a smile. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's it's a real um, it's something else, isn't it? Like to be hunting in an area where you're not the numero uno. You know, like here in New Zealand, we can basically just go in a direction, and decide to stay where we want to stay. You know, we don't put any thought into anything like that. So it's um, it's definitely it's definitely you know like it's, it's for me it's something I gain admiration of post you know like at the time I said you just sort of get on with it as part of what you do then when you sit back and think about that later on it's like well actually that was pretty cool you know and that's definitely another experience I'm never gonna forget you know and and you know I can't wait to pass those stories on to like my kids and, and things like that like it's it is really cool so so going I, I guess you know like for a guy like yourself um you know like you said Ricardo I think it was yeah. was was probably your entry into hunting am i right in thinking that you didn't actually have any family members as such showing you to hunt teaching you to hunt at the time is, is it was that is it am yeah. i right in that yeah yeah fully right no nobody in my family yeah. hunt so it was sort of a passion i don't know where it came from yeah. but it, it just came up and the, the first day i did go hunting you know i knew i was hooked and i hunted pretty much every weekend from that day on so yeah so so for you to I guess grow from from that guy that was quote unquote bucking trends in your family to end up in the Yukon. Some of your family members must have been a little bit confused with that decision, you know. Like, do you? And it's much the same actually with my family. Like, I don't come from a large hunting family, but it's basically all I do. You know, you ask my wife now, I'm either right beside her or I'm hunting. There's one of the two ways. Um, but how do you? How is it that you share your hunting experiences with them to allow them to understand the way you hunt and why you hunt? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard because you can't... Because they haven't, you know, been out with me hunting, because purely, they're not against it, but they just, it's not their thing. You know, it's it's hard to tell a story and, you know, make them realise the context of it. So it's more they just eat the meat and sort of thank me. <laughs> You know, and there's a, I guess, mum's glad and dad's glad that, you know, there could be a thousand other worse things that I'm doing. So, you know, they're, they're pretty happy I'm hunting. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, it's cool. So, so I guess post-Canada, because back then it was only a one-year visa, uh, you returned to New Zealand and went back into the conservation scene? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I went to Canada, came back, um sort of was thinking you know I wanted to be a guide but conservation was really you know and still is a huge passion of mine and I I sort of wanted to to further that knowledge um so yeah just stuck at the conservation side of things um I I was working and I had to work every Wednesday in a nursery and that that's where it really I guess sparked um the passion especially for our native trees um, I was working in a nursery and I, I absolutely hated it at the time, you know, like potting up trees. I was going, man, this is <laughs> this is I'm not, not hitting this out of the park. Yeah, this this is not what a ranger's meant to be doing. Like, get me in those helicopters, you know. Um, and you know, I'd get this old lady and she'd come over and she'd start testing me on the trees and I'd be rolling my eyes, going, oh man. And it, what you know, I was doing that. And without me really realising it, I was actually building quite a strong knowledge in native trees, quite a basic knowledge. But um, and I really I realised that one day I was out pig hunting and nothing was happening, 
as per usual at the time. <laughs> and um, um, I actually started to notice a few of the native trees around me. And suddenly, you know, the bush became familiar. You know, it's such, you know, when you're in the native bush in New Zealand, it it, it is pretty exotic, you know. It, it's, it's quite daunting. Mm-hmm. So to start recognising trees, um, yeah, it just felt like, felt more homely, I guess. And something just sparked inside of me a bit like when I first went hunting and I just wanted to learn every tree in the bush. Um, you know, so friends laugh at me even to this day, you know, if I don't know a tree or a moss or, uh, you know, whatever is going around. I, I take a photo, I take clippings. And, yeah, I've just grown such a such a passion for it. And travelling has also made me realise, you know, how good we've got it here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And we're such a young country. We should, re- we should really be learning um, from the older countries that have lost everything from, they have. From the mistakes made. Like, it's, it's sort of an adage that you told us, and it learn from your mistakes. Yeah, exactly. I think... We've still got, you know, we've still got a long way to go. But, yeah, that's re- that's really getting, I guess, deep into the... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, off, yeah. We'll, we might topic, touch yeah. a bit on that other <laughs> stuff later on. Um, so, but the, but I, I guess the next biggest adventure, or the next big adventure, and the one that signifies the reason we're here right now and the fact that we're here training a, a Scottish course was your next international adventure. Uh, to the Highlands of Scotland, you know, like very different to what was your Yukon and even your New Zealand experience. Um, But, uh, you know, like from what it is you've shared with me and the little that I um, have taken on firsthand myself with my time overseas, um, I know it was a hell of an experience. Um, So can you share a little bit about that? Um, Yeah, so I'd I'd been a... I guess five years it'd been since I'd been to Canada and um, I was sort of ready for the next adventure, as you say, and I wanted to do something similar to Canada, Um, so essentially international hunting. Um, So I looked further into that and I was looking at places like Australia, New Caledonia, and um, one of my mum's friends actually... Uh, they live on an estate in Scotland, which gave me the idea for hunting red deer in Scotland. Um, so I got the contact details off them, and they put me um, in touch with one of the biggest estates in Scotland. So it wasn't long before I had all my visas sorted out, and I was heading to Scotland to chase red deer in the Highlands. So, obviously, um, it was... a. I, I, an unknown uh, opportunity at that point. You didn't really know what you were getting yourself into. How was it? How were the Highlands? You know, I know, I know myself from the people I talk to within the industry. Like it's sort of a, it's got a lot of nostalgic. It's sort of got the tradition of our red deer, you know, underlies with it, and the, yeah. and the, and the tradition of the way they hunt and the why they hunt. Um, how was it? How was Scotland? Yeah, so, you know, it wasn't like Canada. Um, I'd obviously done that awesome 12-day course, which, you know, let me hit the ground running when I went to Canada. So when I went to Scotland, I was I was totally blind. I didn't know what to expect. Um, so, yeah, my first week of Scotland, um, I didn't even know I was going to be, but I ended up wearing tweeds. So, <laughs> you know, especially coming here from New Zealand, we just 
chuck your stubbies on and you know and oil skin and you're off to me getting ready for hunting by ironing my shirt and looking at myself in the mirror putting my tie on so I mean that was a crazy experience in itself to addressing lords um addressing dukes giving them their title it was just like yeah just threw me right off course of what I thought hunting was internationally so you know uh looking back now that's what I take away from Scotland is just is just the tradition and mm-hmm. this whole different way of how they hunt yeah yeah and and tradition and, and history and something like that and, I, and I'm not a history guy I don't this isn't coming from some sort of underlying passion like but it definitely adds an another element to your hunting you know by the time you add what it is you do here and the skills and stuff you've learned from people here in New Zealand and then you add the experience of Canada and the ways and means they hunt over there and then you're on top of that you compile more tradition and history and whole other methods and the way every animal is again a resource per term but straight into the food chain as well like you know like there's so much learning there um you know and I can see you know with with having you here on this course with me and and helping me teach you know the guys that are in there that are that are about to head out to Scotland um I can see the hunter that you are now like and it's it's I don't know if there was some kind of hunter trade war. Like, it's a pretty formidable beast, you know, the fact that you have all those skill sets. So, full credit to you. Like, good on you. Um, but but how's about shared uh, one of your experiences from Scotland? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, Scotland's a is a is a, a beautiful place. It's a bit like I always look at it like a bit like New Zealand. You know, the people are the same. They sort of laugh at the same shit jokes, and they drink. <laughs> Stephen's quite the master at shit jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so we got on like a house on fire, uh, obviously. And um, uh, I guess for me, that one of the most amazing things was it was awesome to hunt red deer, which were obviously liberated to New Zealand from Scotland. So for me, that was a that was really interesting, and to realise, you know how our deer have grown into the deer they have become and looking at the Scottish deer which are you know nearly half the size with you know and especially the headgear being sometimes quarter the size mm-hmm. um I mean that that was crazy for me but the biggest oh, the experiences over there I mean I've got so many but for me it was just spending three months shooting like literally a stag every day mm-hmm. and then going straight into Calling Hines for three months and shooting four deer a day um, just realizing what happens when you know they used to have wolves there and mm-hmm. bears and lynx and they they've become extinct and seeing what happens when you know the natural balance swings and, and how humans have to step in to, to hold that balance. And um, so, yeah, I don't really have a standout story. I guess the whole trips is just a story in itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, I guess, I guess to dive down there a little bit further, like you say, the, the, the balance got out of whack with the lack of predators or, or, or the diminishing number of predators. Um, and therefore, um, you know, it became apparent that the humans, as quote-unquote a predator um it it, it came up to them to help restore some balance and not 
not only for the deer, but for the benefit of uh, the other mammals and, and the other habitats, which therefore you know led to the better environments for the, for more for more mammals for the bird life for everything. Like it actually played a bigger picture than just the deer. Like it's not it doesn't stop at the deer numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. is that is that a, you know fair representation? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, everything's thrown out of whack. You know, you can. Um, you know, I can relate it back to New Zealand if we if we think about now about a simple bird is the wood pigeon here in New Zealand. We only need to remove the wood pigeon or and and the whole balance of our forest is going to be out of whack because they're the only bird that can now big enough swallow like tower berry. So you can imagine, you know, if we lose them, you know, we've got potential to lose some of our trees that produce these bigger seeds because they're the only bird that can Eat the, and and the same things happen in Scotland. You know, we've, they've lost these species, and everything's just been thrown out of whack. So, um, it's awesome to see that the gamekeepers there, and something that we can definitely learn back here in New Zealand is they're they're right into conservation mm-hmm. as they are into hunting. Mm-hmm. So they balance the two, and mm-hmm. I sort of find mm-hmm. here in New Zealand. You're either a conservationist or a greenie or a tree hugger, whatever you call them, mm-hmm. or you're a hunter. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day. We, we both have the same goal yep. or we should have the same goal. Yep. Um, you know, I go to a lot of forest and bird meetings mm-hmm. and, you know, they go, you know, you're, you're a real keen hunter. And How come you sit at the yeah, table yeah, with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm, I'm yeah. whipping out, you know, like, oh, we should be planting this and, you know, we should be protecting the wetland like this. And mm-hmm. they're going, you know, well, you're a hunter. You're, you should be against this stuff. But it, it's not like that. And I, I, yeah, I'd love to see us work together like – the Scots have got it down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's well, you you know Matthew and myself, and that's hopefully what we're slowly going to help achieve with the educated hunt. It's very much, um, you know, part of what we want to achieve. Um, but I, I guess um, whilst we're still with Scotland, I think it's important because um, another part of hunting in Scotland, and I guess it's not so much around the conservation uh, direction, but around the the appreciation and the admiration, and then and the the quote unquote what trophy is to them, <laughs> and the big differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like here in New Zealand, and like you you lightly touched on our antler and antler mass and shape far exceeds what it is in Scotland now. But you know, like your your clients over there to shoot those four points and be awed by it as a, as a impressive trophy, you know, like how do you phantom that? Like, cause, cause it's not what we're led to believe as a trophy. And then, you know, like, and I've always been very much of the belief that a trophy is not the beholder. And a lot of people are, but it's so contrasting. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't even know that when I went to Scotland, nobody told me. So the first day I was out on the hill, you know, we were we were walking past some what I thought were quite nice stags, you know, twelve pointers, pretty respectable, and we went and shot a four pointer. And I was thinking, I mean, these guys have got a lot of learning to do. Like. <laughs> <laughs> they need to spend some time with Uncle Stephen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, man, I need to start guiding. So, um, and I, and I, and then the second hunt was the same. We it's all big stags. And I, was, I didn't say anything, you know. This is this is the deal. I was, you know third hunt it was the same so then i asked the question i was going well, you know why are we walking past these 
massive twelves. Well, not massive, but massive for their you know mm. good twelves. You know something you'd find on dock then be pretty happy with. And shooting like a four pointer, and they're all doing high fives and backflips, and I was going, yeah, it was crazy. So <laughs> I, I I soon began to learn about the Scottish herd management, mm-hmm. and also a little bit how the Europeans look at hunting animals of you know now doing a bit of guiding in New Zealand uh, they've had a few Europeans through and they love mature animals and that is that's exactly what it was in Scotland we were walking past young 12s uh, who had plenty more potential and plenty more genetics to give to the herd and we were shooting the old uh, stags that were past their time and um, obviously genetically poor stags Um, there's a stag there which they call the switch or a switch and it's a mature, so anything over, I guess, four years old, that's growing just as brow tines and main beans. And they'll call that a switch. And, you know, these guys, some of these guys will mount it, you know. This is a real trophy. And um, the reason being is that they're so genetically poor and, and extremely dangerous to the herd because they don't have the tines coming up their main beans that they can't lock into antlers of the other stags that they're fighting so they slip past the opposing stags antlers and those big long main beams just go straight i guess into the chest of the other stag Mm -hmm. and so they actually kill a lot of stags during the rut Mm -hmm. so that's a real trophy in scotland so yeah it's funny isn't it yeah yeah but it's awesome like i love that variation like i think it's awesome and then and and then even further like you touched on you know your experience in scotland was the, the guiding or, or you know with or working with guides you know as a ghillie for the stags and then the hind management so you actually shot a lot of females which you know arguably when i talk to some of my friends about the need to shoot females or the need to restore a bit of balance with that like it's contrast and why would we shoot hinds we're hunters we need to look after populations like if we shoot these deer they're not going to be there like and then here you are you know, in Scotland, a fantastic hunting opportunity where red deer, originate, red deer originated, and you you are deliberately culling hinds again, herd management based, but hinds and and fawns, you know, you know, like that's part of it, right? Yeah, exactly, and 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 that's seventy percent of the of the cow for um, Scotland. I mean, the other thirty being stags. So I think uh, last year we shot, I think four hundred hinds. Yeah. And then calves on top of that, which is there. What, huh? what they call for, yeah, a lot of deer. Um, and I think we know that in New Zealand, if if you know if you've got a area and it's overpopulated by 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 animals, you know, shoot the hinds. And if it's underpopulated, you know, leave the hinds alone. So obviously, you know, when you look at it like that, culling a large number of hinds is is what you need to do. But it's also because there's so much deer in Scotland. Um, there's not enough feed going through the winter. Mm-hmm. So you have to take out that percentage just to keep the other percentage. Keep healthy and Yeah, cheap. yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's pretty crazy because if, if you leave, let the deer live, you're actually making them, you're driving them to extinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because what they do is they, um, you let the numbers grow, they eat all the feed, and all they need is one harsh winter. And, you know, you're going to have a, a huge loss of deer mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there just isn't the feed to sustain that amount of deer. So actually, culling large numbers of deer is preserve, um, preserving deer. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you know, like um, 
you know, like, and, and, and starvation is a slow and painful death when nobody would wish that on anybody. Yeah. And, um, you know, like speaking to my, my wife, who's actually a vet, and one thing she says to me when we, I don't know, share discussion on this is there is nothing inhumane about death if it's instantaneous. Is what leads up to that that is inhumane and starving. That's well up there. Yeah, you know, yeah. you wouldn't wish that on anybody. Nah, nah. You know, so so it's, it's just it's fascinating to see different models around the world being used to to manage and look after a population. You know, like it's uh, and and then and then the the meat itself, much like Canada. You know, like one of the bigger differences from what we do here to Canada was was the restriction around utilizing the meat, and then here, well, sorry, in Scotland, not here, but in Scotland again, it was the similar basis, but a different model again about using the meat, and and it was even income based. You know, and um, sometimes it takes remuneration to be the lead factor in why we do stuff. That's human. That's you know, that's that's how we're wired. Hmm. Um, so how what you know what was happening with those animals? Like obviously, we said four hundred hinds. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, you plus some stags on this. What what was happening with those animals? Yeah, so all the animals we were taking off the estate were going straight into the UK uh, food market. Um, so again, for me, it was um, a whole new learning. You know, I always go into these new opportunities overseas. You know, like I'm starting fresh. So. Um, yeah, so hygiene was massive, you know, like here in New Zealand, we whip the guts out, you know, everyone laughs if you pop the gut bag and, you know, you whip the back <laughs> back legs off back steaks and you chuck them in your rucksack and you're off, you know. But in Scotland, it's all about keeping the animal as clean as possible so you don't contaminate the meat so you can sell it to the UK food chain. So here I was having to learn how to gut, or they call grullic, mm-hmm. a deer in Scotland, like I'd never done it before. Um, you know, the first thing you do when you walk up to a, one of these animals, you know, after you've harvested it, is that you bleed it. So it's like sticking a pig, you know, mm-hmm. you bleed the you bleed the deer, um, then you tie the esophagus, and you, you don't, you only take the guts out, and you leave what they call the pluck, so everything in front of the, the, diaphragm. the diaphragm, yeah, yeah. you leave that all in there, be, so, you know, mud and that can't get into that space of the deer, um, you don't cut around the anus. You go from the inside, um, pull the pellets down towards the guts and actually cut it the, the rectum from the inside. Mm-hmm. And it makes total sense because mm-hmm. the, the only hole into the deer where mud and whatever else can contaminate it is essentially just the gut. Mm-hmm. So um, you do that and you, you do your uttermost to keep it clean by the time you got it to the larder, a larder in Scotland, and a place where you process yep. the deer, and um, then getting taking the deer to the larder and butchering butchering it in a special way, and um, hanging it up, washing it down, um, and then you know putting tags on it a little bit like you do in Canada, um, but more for the game dealer to say that it's been. You know, it's like you're signing your life away saying mm-hmm. that this, you know, mm-hmm. we've properly managed this deer mm-hmm. so it's not contaminated. And then selling that animal to the to the game dealer. So you you have this real like you're out hunting and then at the end of the day you're a bit of like a butcher. Mm-hmm. So yeah, totally mm-hmm. different way of way of doing things. Yeah, and but but super resourceful, you know, nothing nothing is wasted. 
you know, and I, I think that's a really good way to go about that. So, and and you know, like like I like how you said there, like you've gone from hunting for say ten odd years in New Zealand, where you'd harvested quite a few animals, to all of a sudden learning how to grab a or gut a deer again. You know, we've got these guys here on this course, and you know, we've, we've been here for close to a week now, and I know they're all amazed at how much they've had to learn based on the fact that they already knew how to hunt, mm. you know, and I, I think that's, I think it's just a great thing. I think it's, you know, like bigger than hunting and the hunting industry. It's always important to keep learning. And I know these guys will be better hunters for what it is they learn. So, so you, you yourself, based on your time, I guess, New Zealand, the Chatham Islands, the Yukon and Scotland have seen animal management, in several different forms now, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then you work within that big sector called the conservation sector of New Zealand. Like, how do you, in your opinion, feel what we're doing? Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think we we you know no matter where you are in life or anything, you've always got something to learn, and um, I think in the New Zealand sector is. I think we need to work together a little bit more. Um, we've got hunters with different um, skill levels, obviously. I mean, you hear a lot about, you know, guys shouldn't shoot valvities, et cetera. And there's, and, there's, and there's truth to that. There's an element of truth yeah. to that. But everybody uh, gets to that point, you know, where they leave velvet stags, they leave um, young stags, they leave hinds alone. But, you know, we need to get to that point somehow. I mean, I've only got there in the last couple of years. You know, mm-hmm. I used to essentially shoot anything that I came across mm-hmm. purely because I was hunting in Dockland. Um, but I think what we really need to work on is, is you know, being safer out there um, mm-hmm. with, with uh, especially Canada and, and Scotland is that you really got to identify your target before you shoot it. So in Canada, it has to meet a legal requirement. So mm-hmm. it can only be so much inches, have so many points before you shoot it. Yeah, you've essentially measured it. It's not just an animal. Yeah, yeah, for it. sure. And in Scotland, you've got a stag season and you've got a hind season. and You can only shoot mature stags and you, you can only shoot um, mature hinds, you know, which mm-hmm. is really hard to identify. Mm-hmm. It's a skill in itself, and I, I really struggled with it, but I got there in the end. <laughs> um, and sorry, and it's not like, particularly in Scotland, it's not like you're in a, in a managed area where there isn't people because they have the right to run. Yeah. There's people walking through this very hunting country yeah. that haven't advised you that they're there mm. and aren't even hunting themselves. They're literally just free roaming, camping, walking, doing whatever it is that takes of their interest in the land where you're hunting. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 crazy mindset to think that. You yeah, know? yeah. And yet it's still safe based on the fact that you have to look more at what it is you're hunting. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think that's, you know, I don't know if it can ever be possible, but it would be awesome to see that sort of come here to New Zealand. You know, not only on that... Um, animal management level but also on a on a safety level mm-hmm. um i mean I, I i don't know how it would work it would have to be you know managed pretty thoroughly you know because deer are a pest here in new zealand so you mm-hmm. do want to mm-hmm. keep the numbers down or at you know keep them down to a balanced 
a balanced sort of um, balanced number, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how that would work, but it'd be awesome to take all of that and bring it back here to New Zealand. Oh, like, you know, when you hear of people being injured and even those, you know, that unfortunately are killed um, as, a, as a mistake based on hunting, you know, um, you know, that's that's terrible. You know, you hate to think that a sport and a passion and an interest that lies deeply within New Zealand is claiming lives, you know. Mm. Um, so it's, it's certainly something um, that seems to be a byproduct. If, if you loosely summarise it, hunter safety seems to be a byproduct of the need to identify target beyond being an animal. Mm-hmm. So wherever there's the the judging of antler or horn, or the aging, or you know the condition score, like those simple acts of needing to look at an animal beyond an initial assessment, arguably, you know, is safer for everybody. Would that be fair? Right on the money there, Curran. And you know, not only that, but we we can manage our better by using the system you know you, you can see an animal but you're not seeing the the whole object you know mm-hmm. you know it's a deer but you know is it a mature stag you know mm-hmm. is it a genetically poor stag so if we if we could bring a system in like that you know we'd find that you know there's two flip sides to it you know we, we're gonna be safer and we're going to be managing now you know our herd yep. essentially better so yeah, I mean, some of the scariest times I've had here in the New Zealand bush is um, on Dockland, where you know where I've nearly been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite a young guy, and you know, it wasn't a fault of the hunter um, himself. That he'd identified a deer; it was a, it was a stag, but little did he know that I was there also. So, I mean, it's a pretty crazy story. I was hunting pretty remotely, probably about six hours from the nearest dot car park, mm-hmm. hunting the river flats early one morning. Um, I was also, I, I used to take pig dogs with me as well, um, and I'd shoot the deer on the river flats, and the dogs would um, go catch some goats or some pigs. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I was hunting down this down this uh, river flat, like a bush flat, and the dogs came next to me, and they were looking a little bit dodgy, so I knew there was uh, probably a deer around and sure enough, a stag walked out in, fr- in front of me, probably only about 50 metres away. He was looking pretty spooked, and he was looking the other way. And I just caught, looking over his back, a hunter with the rifle pointing it at the stag. Which direct- therefore was your direction. Directly too. in front of me. Like I could see the stag and the hunter, and I could see that the hunter didn't see me. Um, and he he shot and he missed that stag. And, and that bullet, I mean, that that was pretty close to me. He knew that there was another hunter around because he'd seen my dogs. Um, yeah, it was just a pretty, you know, it was a series of unfortunate unfortunate events. But, yeah, it nearly, the, the end result was nearly, um, well, yeah, pretty, yeah. yeah, Terminal. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, on the flip side of that, I've also done the same. I, um, talking about Ricardo again, um, I was hunting, a, this was a private block this time, and we were young guys, and we'd split up, you know, we were doing exactly probably what you shouldn't do, mm-hmm. and I'd seen a couple deer ahead of me, and something had spooked them, I thought it was myself, and they'd run down over the ridge into sort of like a bush gully below me, but they were sort of running in my direction, 
So I, I thought, all right, I might be able to cut them off and, you know, get Catch off a shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I got down there and I could hear them, or what I thought was them. And they were coming back up to me. And they were running in my direction, so it wasn't, um, you know, so I, as you do, I got my I got my rifle ready. I put a round up the spout. They only sounded about 20 metres away. And... Um, um, I was I was lucky enough that I, I I don't put the bolt down until I see the animal, and um, I was on half cock, and I was I was pretty much a hundred percent sure I was going to see a deer when I see you know my best mate Ricardo's face appear in the scrub in front of me, mm. and you know he, he didn't even know the deer were there. Yeah, sick feeling, huh? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so pretty crazy, pretty crazy. So. Yeah, sick feeling, uh, and um, you know, knowing you, and and knowing you now. You probably wouldn't even go through the same thought process, based on the hunting you've done now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 I think that's quite important. You know, a lot of accidents or near misses come about, arguably because there's quite a lot of people that hunt but don't hunt often or yeah. don't put themselves in enough experiences to relax, yeah. which I think in part comes again by having seasons. People mm. relax. I, I feel, and it's only my opinion, relax more when this isn't their one opportunity to get a stag. Mm. This isn't their one opportunity to do this, you know. And I, so there, there is a bit of a balance there. Um, but I, I get like to to get off that. Con- I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of topic there, and, and we'll probably talk about that at another time. But I, I guess based on your skill set and your history within the conservation. And I'm going down another rabbit hole. I can see the look <laughs> on your face here. Um, and then the management structures you've been privy to internationally. And then what, and with our animals being a pest, quote unquote, a pest here, and per legal description. And then mixed in amongst all that big kettle of fish uh, is the 1080 debate. Mm. I, like, uh, what? give me your version of 1080 based on what it is you've seen internationally mm. and what it is you know for fact based on your education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah, so this is a... <laughs> Sorry, that's a yeah. horrible big topic. But um, yeah. but it's one... But, and the reason I go down this route is because right now it's basically um, a hunter's... We hate 1080 mm. without, without saying the word... If you CK everybody else because it's yeah. not right and we shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. But there's a way bigger picture to that. Yeah, you know, and then yeah. and there's way more understanding that needs to be achieved with that. Yeah, yeah. And hunters themselves need to be prepared to have the discussions and be be prepared to listen because that's what we're not doing. Yeah, yeah. We just argue, 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 argue. Yeah, yeah. Um, without any validation. Yeah. Mm. So, so, sorry. Yeah, I mean, nothing cracks me up more than... You know, I see it quite often as a, a ute comes past and he's got on the back something anti-1080, you know. And I know a few of these guys who do it, you know, and I, I, start, I actually talk to them about it. I, I'm interested in why they don't like it so much. And um, the the common answer I get back always is, is they hate the native birds dying, you know. And I'm always, oh, okay, so, you know, what native birds are you worried about? And they scratch their head around and, you know, um, and 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 they, oh the takahe you know the ta- oh but there's no takahe in that area you know so I, I find a lot of hunters use that as an excuse, mm-hmm. um, you know we all know 1080 isn't perfect, um, yeah. but 
you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on 1080 and, you know, I don't, from what I can research, I don't think anybody is. Everyone's so, you know, everyone's on a different side of the picture. But for me, um, I think what's more important, I think our native animals, our flora and fauna is more important than an introduced species. Mm-hmm. They've got more right to be here. Um, you know, I think something like in New Zealand, we have like upwards of 80% um, endemic species you can't find them anywhere else and, and I think that's so special in New Zealand and and, and that should be um, you know that should be our biggest goal is to preserve, preserve them even mm-hmm. as hunters and that's quite hard to do because you're, you're essentially giving your passion your, I guess and having to um, I guess fight your greed for your passion for hunting to give that up to actually say no you know these are more important Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think 1080. I always use quite a harsh example to people. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's like chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that chemo isn't perfect, but we know it prolongs can prolong the life or save the life of a human. And while they use while they use chemo, they're constantly studying and trialing new chemicals to try you know, fight cancer. To find a solution. And it's exactly the same with 1080. Doc knows it's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, they're just using it to, to prolong the life mm-hmm. of these species mm-hmm. while they try to find the perfect antidote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what it is. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's heaps of people say, oh, we can go track possums. And I don't know why possums get highlighted so much because there's more to possums. Mm-hmm. You know, there's rats, stoats. Yeah, yeah, the only one of yeah, 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 and like there's guys who go, oh, we should get trappers to do it. Like I'd love to see them go into the Westland and trap some of that country. They ain't yeah. like, they ain't lasting half a day. No. I'll no, put no, no. money on that. Yeah, 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 and and I'm, I'll have a conversation with a good friend of mine soon, probably, and that that very fact will come up. But I I know secondhand through him, one of the hardest or the biggest problems they face is to get guys to do this work and do this work well. And, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, there will be people in New Zealand that are more than capable and are currently doing this. Like, that's not, yeah. I'm not talking about there's nobody. Yeah. But there's not enough to run that industry. And who's going to do it when they're not getting many possums and the bounty drops? And who's going to do it in the really shit country? Because there is really shit country out there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the way you sum it up there, whilst on a very unfortunate subject, is, is dead right. From me, as an and uneducated, you know, I don't work in that sector as such. Um, you know, I, I know 1080 is not not great. I know it is. and But I equally, I don't think anybody deliberately goes out there to target non, to to, to hit non-targeted species with it. Like that's, that's just small talk trying to be big talk. I just don't think that accuracy is there. Um, and, 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 you know, and I would love you know, some boundaries to go around the fact that if you can't walk there in 12 hours, then they can do their current method. And if somebody can walk in there, then perhaps we can do a ground method then. I don't know. Like, I don't have the science. I don't have the figures. But as a hunter that has been around a little bit and been around internationally, I know that there needs to be conversation about it. And there needs to be evidential proof that comes in to to show me that I'm right and wrong in my thinking. I'm, it's silly of me just to argue with these guys that have spent years trying to figure this out. It's not like they're just doing this at the drop of a hat. Um, 
and, and it's a big argument and I just want, I don't know how I got here now in my head but I just want to jump on there and and Stefan um when I listened back to this he he made the comment about greed around our own hunting mm-hmm. um I think well, I know I'm right in saying this this isn't this isn't about removing deer f- from New Zealand so we can't hunt them that's not what that's not even close to where we're going. That's a whole different killer fish in in the way that they're branded as a pest and stuff. This is about 1080 and the use of to protect mm. the, our native species. Yeah. It's not about eliminating everything else so our hunters now have nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. Like that's not what this argument nah, is. No, not at all. So just to clear up. So that, that was interesting. Like I, I enjoy talking on that subject, even in a little form like that. Um, I think it's important to start getting out there and just to have people talking about it and start hearing different versions. Yeah, like yeah. when people hear this podcast and when these guys are here in this training course that now know you, know that your passion for hunting far exceeds most and you have a reasonable acceptance of 1080. Acceptance is probably the right word. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know like sure. it's not, you're not pro 1080, yeah. but you're not against it either. You're, no. you're acceptant of somebody doing something in the meantime till there's a better solution. Yeah. I mean, from I, I think to summarize, um, I just I think we just need more balance. You know, we need a more balanced ecosystem where I guess you know, with the rabbit fingers, everything can live in harmony. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I just I just think as hunters, we can do more. You know, when we are going into especially dockland to do a little bit more trapping. Um, a little bit more volunteer work because you know we are the ones that use essentially the, the back country and more than anybody else nearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess to summarise that, I just think as hunters we need to you know be more ex- accepting of conservation, and a lot of hunters already are. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not yep. saying that yep, they are. And yeah, I think we just need a, a bit more balance. You know. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we'll. We'll quickly lighten that mood because <laughs> it's quite the topic. So, taking on board all the experience you now have, Stefan, um, what is there one key lesson or one one time of learning that is that you believe has made you a better hunter? Mm, that's a pretty tricky question. Um, I sort of ask myself you know when I was young growing up you know what makes somebody a good hunter um, I used to ask a lot of people because I wanted to strive to be that that person and um, no one could really answer my questions apart from you know this guy take take your time or a good hunter he knows the country and um, I came to the conclusion and I guess it was a learning curve for me that a, a good hunter is just a keen hunter. Mm-hmm. So the hunters that are successful are the ones that spend the time out there doing it. Yeah. And from there, you more learn about where the deer are. Um, and because you're spending so much time in the field, you you naturally get the animals as well. Um, yeah. So I guess just from over the years, I've learned that you just just need to get out there and do it. Yep. And have fun. No, I, I agree. I, I, I'm not sure if you've ever heard me say this, but I definitely say it at most of my courses. Like, I just don't believe there's an expert hunter, but there's for sure guys that get out there more, do more, see more, 
and learn more than to me they're obvious traits so you know like there's despite that comment there's obviously been some growth within your hunting capability and your, or your hunting ability um but what about outside of the immediate hunting like if we think of all the experiences you've been through as a guy that travels and a guy that likes to hunt um, if we put that dull that right down like what is it that you've learned about yourself you know throughout your experiences uh, yeah I mean I think hunting has you know taught me more about myself than anything else is um, in my lifetime anyway um, the biggest lesson that I've learned um, is probably not something I like to admit is that I've, I've actually struggled with isolation mm-hmm. um, but it, it's such a it, it's such a funny feeling because that that struggle is what also brings me back to challenge myself mm-hmm. even more. Mm-hmm. So I think about when I first started hunting and I'd go for a two-day hunt and by the end of the two days, I was just ready to go home. I just needed to, I don't know, socialise again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I need Xbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as soon as I was out, I was just drawn back in. And slowly as I've... Uh, you know, I guess matured as a hunter, I can now, you know, go into, go to Scotland for six months, mm-hmm. you know, still be challenged, but I can comfortably do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think hunting has taught me that I'm sometimes not as, I guess, manly mm-hmm. as I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the mountains has a good way of really putting you in your place yep. and, you know, yeah. Yeah, definitely, and uh, like, I amongst the stuff I learned last year, um, one of the little, I guess, conversation points that come up that really has stuck with me, and I've definitely used it in a hunting context, but life as a whole, um, is that beyond frustration is a breakthrough, and that's a really simple thing when you hear it like that, but isolation and the, the symptoms that come up around isolation and how it affects you is almost a frustration mm. and then when you start to combat that it's a breakthrough and then you start mm. enjoying the bush and you know like you mentioned in your podcast you started noticing the trees and you've started noticing the different environments and the people mm. and everything now whilst you still have those little inner feelings with the isolation mm. you're equally as comfortable with the outcome of that like you know yeah. there's there's a breakthrough on the horizon and there will be quote unquote a reward for that yeah yeah for sure i i mean it's been the challenges around it and you know now my most memorable hunts or what i not my most memorable but what, what i enjoy most now is actually doing solo missions mm-hmm. and um i think it's just pushing that boundaries of isolation again mm-hmm. um self-reliance yeah self-reliance um just the that feeling when you're up like a real awkward side creek or up in a bluff system that you know there's no one else there and that's what i'm really i really 
enjoy about hunting now mm-hmm. is, is just those challenges and, and me going out by myself now. Um, obviously, you've got EPUBs and, and reach and all stuff like that these days, but yeah, just that, that challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, awesome. That's, that's, that's a good, good point there. So I guess the the next question or the next next logical point is how did you go from Canada then Scotland to now sitting with me in the evening you know helping me out here with the training at ultimately and and contributing largely to this course and the success of this course yeah so um again I was I was in Scotland and um Scotland was quite funny that there, there wasn't many Kiwis that actually have ever hunted in Scotland. I mean, they come through in drips and drabs, but it's not really like Canada where there's seasonal Kiwis heading over all the time. Um, you know, on the estate I was on, I was the first Kiwi, uh, yeah, the first Kiwi to ever work there uh, that the head stalker um, could re- could remember. And throughout the season, I kept hearing from all the stalkers um, from my estate and other estates that... Um, that I should bring over some mates because they're lacking keen staff that want to just work that seasonal period. You know, everyone wants a full-time job. Mm-hmm. So um, I saw an opportunity in that. And straight away, obviously, I'd done the Ultimate OE course going to Canada and I just straight away thought of you guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this would be an awesome opportunity um, for to bring more Kiwis over to Scotland. Um mm-hmm. So yeah, I, as you guys know, I flicked you guys a message and you guys were pretty much as keen as I I was or more so. And, um, you know, f- four months later, here we are running the first Scottish Ultimate OE program. And um, yeah, I think the boys are going to go over and have a blast. Mm, yeah, well, it's definitely, you know, like, what we get out of it as instructors, you know, it's great to, to be able to offer an opportunity and a new opportunity, but it's also great to be able to help, you know, so we educate and we upskill these guys before they go. So they don't have the bumps and teething problems that you had, you know, despite your previous skill set. Um, but then equally, you know, from Matthew and myself's point of view, like, it's like an alumni. It's great to have an old boy back here now working with us and um, to see that what our intention was back then to install young Kiwis with ethics and ambition and desire to be in the hunting industry and to be better in the hunting industry and to offer in the hunting industry is coming more so to fruition than we had probably ever imagined. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's just, yeah, for sure. So it's awesome. Like I, you know, like I appreciate all the help you've done, and I, I like the work you put into this course has been amazing, and the guys have really appreciated having you here. But then it's it's just enjoyable too. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. There's certainly more to it. So, that, so definitely thank you. Certainly from me now. You know, the two of us have spent the week uh, in this training course, but obviously on behalf of Matthew as well. You know, like. A, um, if logistics weren't what they were, he'd be here now. Um, but yeah, most likely on the next Scottish course, it'll be the three of us. Um, yeah, so I, you know, this is certainly just the start. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. What's the one bit of gear that, when it comes to hunting, Stefan always carries? Whew, man, 
Is Anything. <laughs> I think now, um, and and I've only had this piece of kit for about a year now, is a spotting scope. Man, I can't go anywhere without that thing. Like, it's just it's just amazing what you can see through the spotter, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about that, um, you know, like selecting the right animal. That spotter, you know, it's a lie detector, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now if the phone scope you can put on it, um, I can't go anywhere without that spotting scope anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can that's tell my you, baby. As you get older and your knees get sore, it just becomes more and more valuable. You're only just fringing on how valuable that thing is. <laughs> oh, no, that's cool. That's cool. Um, you know, crikey, I guess we've got some quick fire questions that we ask everybody. And the two big ones, which our guys with international experience sort of add a little bit different too. But if 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 you had an unlimited budget right now, no restraints, uh, you know, nothing. Nothing at all was a limiting factor. What it is you? What What would you hunt, and and why? What you know? What would it be? Why would you hunt it? Um, I think my next trip I want to do um, is Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I've, I've read a lot of books now about Mongolia, and I've seen that they they, they hunt um, you know certain species with actually by um, eagle, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, I, it's more why um, I hunt for more for the adventure. You know, you won't catch me up the same catchment more than three or four times. I get bored of it. Hunting for me is about, you know, finding new places and, and that's what it's always about. So, yeah, I think Mongolia and purely for the adventure. Cool. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's cool. And, and being around the big birds would be cool. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and just the different way they hunt, you know. They, they dress up probably what they think is normal. But, you know, <laughs> for me it would be just an awesome experience, you know, yeah. just to see how yeah. they do it. So, yeah. Sitting and, their saddle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, and, and then the, the final big question. If you had to hunt one species for the rest of your life, what would it, that be? All right, that's a harsh question. Yeah. Um, oh man, you know, I've I got to admire the red deer. You know, I I love the red deer. I mean, there's other species out there that are, you know, probably more exciting to hunt. But I, I think red deer. I just think they've just they've just got a place, mm-hmm. um, you know, within New Zealand now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'd have to say red deer, hands down. Cool. No. Well, yeah. Awesome. And I fully agree great animal to hunt sort of the one species we have here that has so much variation within itself you know in terms of where it lives where it occupies its time the seasons it has within itself like there's a lot of hunting just in red deer you know Um, so so I think we'll wrap it up there Um, we better go in and check on the lads (laughs) you know Uh, we've left them alone for a couple of hours now and that for sure could be about an hour and 45 minutes too long so We'll wrap it up here. Um, I'll say a big thank you to Stefan. It's been a great chat. Um, I know, I know, I've enjoyed it, and I know you'll enjoy it. And I know there was some precursor there to some bigger topics that, when I get better at this game, and Stefan gets a little bit more relaxed, we'll get right into. Um, Stefan's now entered the New Zealand professional hunting scene, um, so he's added another string to his bow. So there's going to be a lot more conversation around that stuff. So. Uh, again, I thank Stefan, um, you know, and I, I thank him for the help he's 
he's given myself and Matthew as ultimate OE. You know, we're, we're stoked to have um, Stefan on board with us here. Uh, massive asset. And, um, yeah, I just hope to hope to further, further this relationship and share some experiences. I'm, I'm off to Scotland um, in um, six weeks, eight weeks, where I'll catch up with Stefan over there, and maybe we, we even do a podcast there. Awesome. And, that, um, that's yeah. cool. Cheers, Kieran. No worries at all. We'll catch you in the clearing, buddy. Sweet, man. Catch you later. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining, or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives, and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram at The Educated Hunter. Or finally, join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and catch you on the clearing. G'day everyone, it's Matt speaking. Um, I thought I'd take this opportunity to quickly answer a question that Kern and I often get about the Ultimate OE program. And that question is, why should I do the training? Why should I pay the money? Can't I just go to, let's say, Canada and get my own job in the hunting industry? Now, that's a fair enough question. Uh, both Curran and myself would have asked that question before we've had the experience that we've had. And we don't mind answering that question as a result. You know, if you're sitting at home thinking, you know, I'm a really good hunter, I've got plenty of experience, you know, I grew up on a farm, I've got plenty of practical experience, outdoor experience, surely I can't just go over there and pick it up, save myself the money and the time. The answer to the question and why we believe you should do the Ultimate OE program and believe that it will enhance your overall experience in Canada is kind of a, um, kind of a long answer. And I need to give you a little bit of context about A, what you learn and B, why you learn it and how that then translates into a better overall experience. So during the training, let's use the Canadian program as an example. It's more established than our Scottish one. Um, so the Canadian training is based around skills, knowledge and qualifications. The content of that training is designed by and contributed to by our employers in Canada as well as Curran and myself as experienced guides and wranglers, as well as a number of other industry experts that contributed to that training content. So to sum that up, it's what you need to know to hit the ground running when you get to Canada. So our employers expect our cadets to know and understand a certain uh, amount of information and have a certain level of skill before they get there so they can hit the ground running. So on the skills front, we're talking about learning how to tie diamonds, pack horses, handle horses, ride horses, saddle your own horse. We do um, in-depth trophy skinning and taxidermy, so turning ears, eyes, ears, lips, noses, salting skins. We do predator predator safety. We do chainsaw safety operation and maintenance. We do backcountry first aid, a Canadian backcountry first aid, so you get your Canadian certificate. Uh, We do... Um, in terms of qualifications, 
Uh, so you've got your first aid and you've got your Canadian firearms license or p- possession and acquisition license, which means that you can, we teach that here in New Zealand, so that you have your Canadian possession and acquisition license on arrival in Canada. Therefore, you can legally carry a, carry a firearm in the mountains of Canada, which is a, um, a huge advantage, even if it's just for bear defence. Um, so we do that as a qualification and the knowledge and theoretical side we cover a huge amount of information from uh, legal side of things so Canadian firearms law, Canadian game law, tags, the whole outfitting system, how outfits work um, how to interact with clients, what your role is when you get there, um, what wrangling means, how to wrangle how to best support your guide, how to work your way up the ladder as quickly as possible if that's your end goal, um, how to hunt Canadian animals, a uh, huge amount of information that is all very relevant to your placement in Canada. So we cram all that into 10 days. Um, we give you the, the information that you need to sort of build on those skill sets so that when you get to Canada, you will be a very effective employee and your learning curve won't be anywhere near as steep. So from an employer's perspective, our graduates make very attractive employees because they know they're going to turn up with A, the legal side of things squared away, for example, your firearms, B, your paperwork stuff squared away, so your your working visa, your social insurance number, bank account, driver's license, all that kind of stuff we help you with. So the outfitters and employers know that squared away and see the knowledge side of things so they, when you get there, They know that you know how things work, um, how to interact with clients, how the business works, what you're there to do. That all is actually very, very important as well in terms of how steep your learning curve is and how quickly you become an effective and useful employee for the employer. So all of that makes a very attractive package for our outfitters. And that means that we can secure essentially the jobs ahead of time because our employers know what they're going to get from us. Even though we haven't trained you yet, they understand that the level of employee that we deliver to Canada is higher than what they're going to get from just hiring somebody randomly over the internet, for example. I mean, as I said, you could be New Zealand's best hunter and think you know what you're getting yourself in for, but without that prior knowledge and training, um, it's always a very steep learning curve for anyone that heads over. So from a employer's perspective hiring one of our guys is much more attractive than hiring somebody randomly over the internet for that reason we can secure the best jobs and if you go through our program it means that we're going to match you up with an outfitter that we think you're going to do the best with so that really starts talking about your overall experience Having done the training, when you get to Canada, your learning curve isn't as steep, so you're going to enjoy yourself a lot more, you're going to get more opportunities on the hunting front, you're going to get more opportunities in terms of working with guides right out of the gate. Having those skill sets means that you're not wasting time learning stuff that you could have learnt before you got there. Um, And on the other side of it is we, during the training, we're constantly assessing what outfit is going to be the best fit for you depending on whatever your motivation is for going to Canada in the first place. So if you are committed to becoming a professional hunting guide and this is the you know first or second stepping stone for that to happen, then we'll place you with certain outfits where we know that you've got a good chance of progressing up through the ranks and becoming a guide. If you're just going over for an overseas experience, for example, and you just want to 
um, the most experience and see the most country or different animals or what have you, whatever your motivation is, we might place you somewhere else. If you're looking for a very horse-heavy placement, we'll send you here. If you're looking for a backpack-only placement, we might send you there. So that's a big advantage is that we understand all of our different outfitters really well and we can match them up with the best cadets or graduates through our program so everybody is happy. So that's another major advantage of going through us is you know you're going to get placed somewhere that you're going to enjoy yourself, it's going to challenge you and culturally you're going to line up with your with your boss. So that's another reason why our program has had the success that it has um, is because we try and put people you know, the right people in the right places. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is we only work with the best outfitters and now estates more recently in Scotland. We don't work with ones that have bad reputations, that don't look after staff, etc., etc. So if we're not working with an outfitter or an estate already, there's probably a good reason for it. So just keep that in the back of your mind as well. As I say, me and Curran, before we had this experience, would have you know, jumped on the bandwagon and headed over there and just sort of hope for the best and as everybody's right to do that. But if you really want to get the most out of your experience, the most out of your ROE, then I strongly suggest giving us a call and, and talking over what we can do for you in terms of your, your hunting experience. I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. I understand that um, our program's not for everybody, but if you're, you know, under the age of 35 looking for an adventure, uh, want to do something a little bit more than you, you you know a little bit more unique than your cliche go to London and go to the pub type OE then ultimate OE might be for you like we are heavy on adventure heavy on unique and we guarantee that it'll be a you know a life-changing experience if you come through our program